The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Netflix, presenting season three of its original series, House of Cards, about ruthless DC power couple Frank and Claire Underwood, starring Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. All episodes are available on Friday, February 27th. And by American Crime. This March, one crime will affect so many lives. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary drama. Don't miss American Crime, premiering Thursday, March 5th, 10, 9 central on ABC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Decapitated Swan Dress Edition. It's Wednesday, February 25th, 2015. On today's show, the Oscars have come and gone. We'll take one last forensic peek at them. And then Bjork has a new album. It's called Volna Cura, I believe that's how you pronounce it. She has never been discussed on the show, to the best of my knowledge, right? We've never Bjorked. No. Okay. And we're going to rectify that today with Slate's own uh, pop critic, Carl Wilson. That'll be wonderful. Always good to see Carl. And then finally, audiophilia, somewhere between being a wine snob and what? And uh, like climate truther? (laughs) I think you (laughs) nailed it. (laughs) Joining us today, of course, is uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. And Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, Steve. I should add uh, right away that Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, is joining us for the whole show, which is uh, obviously our privilege and delight. Carl, thank you so much for coming in. It's so great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. And Carl is not on the phone from a Toronto apartment. He is here in the flesh in New York City. So we are, it's like a party in the studio today. (laughs) So much champagne. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to be in the Fleisch, in the Zitzfleisch. Yeah, here you are in studio. My ass is in the chair. For the first time in 2015, I believe. Yeah, but it's been a long time, my God. Can I take this moment to do a hot Slot Plus preview edition? Yeah. We are going to have a metaphysical, philosophical, psychological discussion of whether writing is a calling or a job. Featuring FT in the vernacular of uh, the album cover. Steve's explanation of the German word Sitzfleisch. So Mm. sign up for Slate Plus and tune in to our Slate Plus segment if you want to hear more about all of that. I feel like we're getting a more uh, authoritative pronunciation on this one from Dana, though. I believe it's the, I think the beginning S in German is a Z. I think it's Zitzfleisch. Correct us, German speakers. Zitzfleisch. All right, before we dive in, Julia, we, uh, we have a bit of business. Yeah, I am stoked on this, and I can't say I did this intentionally, but we here at Slate, and Slate Podcasting in particular, have an enormous announcement that drops today, and because it's dropping on a Wednesday, that means that the Culture Gap Fest listeners get to hear about it first. Uh, We can finally disclose a project that we have been working on for many months. Today, the Slate Group is announcing the launch of Panoply, which is a new full-service podcast network for media outlets, authors, and personalities. Some of you may have noticed when the Times Magazine relaunched last weekend that they had a new ethicist column revamped as a podcast and transcript. Uh, That first podcast was taped here in this very room. In fact, this very room appeared in a photograph in the Times Magazine this weekend. They're one of our media partners, and we have a very impressive collection of new programs from a long list of great partners, including Inc., WBUR Radio, Food 52, New York Magazine and its Vulture blog, The Huffington Post, The FX Drama, The Americans, Real Simple, Popular Science, author Gresham Rubin, The National Constitution Center, and finally a podcast called Simply, 
our national conversation about conversations about race with Baratundi Thurston, Raquel Cepeda, and Tanner Colby, who's uh, your longtime podcast pal on Spoiler Special. Oh, yeah, Dana. he's a great podcaster. Um, so a ton of really good voices and interesting ideas in here. We've had a lot of fun in the secret laboratory cooking up these projects and plans, and there will be more to come. You'll be able to hear Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all major podcast apps. Uh, and to hear some of the very first offerings of the Panoply Network right now, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. Panoply. I can jump in on one of those, which is that I've already heard the Americans podcast, and it's great. It sort of serves the uh, the, the role that the uh, serial spoiler special did on Slate, where that moment that you need another fix and you can't believe you have a week to wait, you can go and stick it in your ears. Yeah, Panoply, uh, as you well know, Steve, means a complete and impressive collection of things. And uh, when Andy Bowers collects things, it's inevitably impressive. So um, all hail Panoply. And uh, yeah, send us your feedback. We're dying to hear what you think of all these cool new shows. Thrilling. All right. Well, digging in. Dana, we got to start with you. So the Academy Awards have come and gone. Um, In what way were they meaningful, uh, diverting, uh, or outrageous to you? <laughs> well, I mean, this is an unusual year for me because I didn't have to stay up all night writing on them, which made them much more um, approachable. But unfortunately, that also coincided with a ceremony that I found really full of malaise. I mean, not only, you know, sort of going over and picking over each uh, acceptance speech for its political outrage, which we can talk about, but just the general mood of the whole ceremony to me had just a real sluggishness and strangeness about it, which I don't really get because Neil Patrick Harris is such a, a wonder. Is that random or, or, or is that a part of a trend? Do you think in recent years it's been going in the direction of gathering audience indifference to it? What, Julia, do you think it was? I don't tend to think that the Oscar ceremony reflects anything other than the fact that it's difficult to pull off a fun-seeming Oscar ceremony. Like, I'm not sure it really makes sense to read it as a critique or indicator or like dipstick of the relationship between the American populace and Hollywood. I actually think the range of movies nominated this year were pretty good and interesting and exciting. Like I liked Birdman. I liked Boyhood. I liked some of the other ones. Not Imitation Game, as we've discussed. But Linda Holmes had a great postmortem of the event where she talked about it being like a party that went, that suddenly seemed like it was going badly. And I do think the host of the Oscars is like a host in that sense. They're hosting kind of like a convivial evening. And it was really weird and unsettling to see Neil Patrick Harris fuck up. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris has basically been Doogie Howser his whole life. Like, he is a perfect high achiever, and he sort of handled child stardom better than anyone else. He just disappeared for a few decades where, like, he figured his shit out. And then he came back, and basically from that initial self-mocking cameo in that Harold and Kumar movies, he hasn't put a foot wrong for however long it's been now, like more than a decade. You know, whether it's in Hedwig or in How I Met Your Mother or in his other hosting gigs for the Tonys and the Emmys, like, he's just seemed flawless. And so I wasn't even worried. Usually you're, like, a little bit anxious on behalf of the host. And I was just like, it's going to be great to have such a perfect Oscars tonight. And then it was just, like, one dead joke after another. And but we can't pin it all on Neil Patrick Harris. You know, the, the writing was really remarkably poor this year. And apparently the head writer, Greg Berlanti, who was the head joke writer, sort of the head of the Oscars writing team, is not a comedy writer. He's sort of a, he writes teen soaps, and he's done a lot of writing for TV. I can't remember all his credits now, but it's not the person that you would want to be churning out wisecracks. Yeah, that seemed like the big problem was there was just some absence in the writer's room, and Neil Patrick Harris had to say these terrible things over and over again. But the part that I would put on Neil Patrick Harris, because we know it's a fetish of his, is the magic trick thing, which became like torture as the evening went on, this going back and forth to the sealed box and poor Octavia sitting there going, when can I 
get out of my seat and get, I need to go get a drink in the washroom. And she seemed dragooned into it. And then the end payoff was couldn't have been effective, but was particularly flat. It was I mean, terrible. it was just, but the thing is, someone who's like an obsessive student of magic, as Neil Patrick Harris is, should understand that the whole thing with magic is you have to be in the room. Like, it mm. does not work to translate. I mean, I guess was surprising that there were a bunch of jokes about particularities of this ceremony in the box. I'm sure there was actual, like, magic sleight of hand that went into that. But if you were an Octavia Spencer or some, like, more willing participant than she in a room, it just seemed like TV. Like, and then it then it was like, oh, it's just a bunch of kind of monologue jokes. They finally hired a joke writer for these, like, four jokes, which were fine. Okay, but we're concentrating on the ceremony itself, and I feel like, Julia Turner, you're casually putting a million think journalists out of work by saying that this isn't highly reflective of the populace's feelings about Hollywood. And, like, Carl, can't we psychoanalyze the state of American movies via the Oscar, or am I reading too much into it? Well, I think, the, you know, one thing is that the Oscars have lagged behind a lot of award shows in understanding that it's a show, and so its desire to sh- make enough time to kneel at the feet of Hollywood rather than do something diverting makes it seem old-fashioned, and yet it's not willing to be old-fashioned enough to just give us Broadway reviews or something, which I'd rather just see a bunch of, you know, people in feathers kind of well, doing Well, the Debbie Allen kicks. choreography, <laughs> Yeah, right? exactly. I'd rather days. be back to that if that's all we're going to get. And then this year, it seems like the effects of social media criticism were also making the whole thing yeah. weirdly self-conscious. And so every black person in Hollywood at some point got up to present something in order to counterbalance the feeling of the snub and the uncomfortability around Selma. And that was also a really odd thing that you couldn't help but be very self-conscious of. And so it's the sense that there's a disjunct between what smart, involved cultural people are thinking about movies right now and what Hollywood is thinking about its own movies felt like at a all-time kind of gap. Yeah, I was, I was actually amazed at how uh, how uncomfortable race was throughout the ceremony. I mean, I, to some degree, minimized the, the accusations that Selma was under-nominated because of racism, because I think there were a lot of other, you know, industry factors going into the equation. But, wow, I mean, that was really, there was an ongoing problem about, you know, sort of racial representation and essentially white people trotting out brown people to demonstrate something for the entire evening. And there was sort of an attack. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris had been very public about his disappointment in the range of nominations, even after he'd been announced as the host and his sense that the Oscars were too white. But then the tone deafness with which he, I mean, he opened the show with the joke about about the best and the whitest, the the very first line. Yeah, the very first joke, which suggested, okay, he's going to be, this is going to be a pointed kind of needling sort of Oscars. But then you know, trotting out David Oyelowo to mispronounce his name and, like, just show that he had a British accent seemed to use him as a prop. The Octavia Spencer thing seemed to use her as a prop. Like, fundamentally, you can't, like, joke your way out of this sense that the movies Hollywood makes are not representative. And, you know, Wesley Morris noted in his recap of the night that that kind of unthinking and grotesque exchange between Amy Pascal and Scott Rudin about the kinds of movies that Obama would watch and the kind of complete just disregard and misapprehension of kind of black audiences and black themes that that email really casually suggested to me was like the anchor on the whole night. Like you just felt, wow, these people are out of touch. And even even flawless NPH, who I would trust to, you know, launch any ship to any destination, like can't get this right and seems oblivious. And 
it was it was jarring and off-putting. Should we talk about specific winners? Uh, Dana, how did you feel about who won and who didn't? I, you know, I mean, I feel like this is such a boring response, but I really feel like I've re- reached this Buddha-like place in relation to the Oscars where I am not but emotionally invested. Who cares, right? But is that... But it's not who cares even exactly. I mean, it's, it's all related to that great book, The Economy of Prestige, yeah. that I read. Have you guys read this book, Carl? you know that book? No, I've heard you guys talk about it. Oh, it's so good. It. I've endorsed it on the show before, I think, anyway. Um, but it's, and it's sort of about awards culture and the, the extent to which sort of awards have structured, you know, the sort of entire hierarchy of value of our secular society, right? And and ever since reading that book, I find the Oscars sort of fascinating as something to witness, but I could never really get into them as a sporting event, but even less so now. That doesn't mean that you don't experience a joy in seeing, you know, someone who's wonderful come up and get an award. Julianne Moore's award mm-hmm. was really exciting for me because, you know, I just feel like she's been waiting for that for so long and she was wonderful in that movie. And so there might be moments that, that you're touched, but uh, I can't say that I, I had a big investment, y'all. I mean, like, I liked Birdman. I don't know. I I, I did not feel that there was a movie I was dying to see win or lose. I was glad Patricia Arquette won for Boyhood and that Boyhood was recognized in some way. Uh, you know, our our colleague and culture editor, Jan Coyce, wrote a cri de corps suggesting that the failure of Boyhood to win Best Picture was kind of a once-in-an-epic Oscar travesty and that we'll look back on that film as just a really remarkable piece of work in the Pantheon and, and be sad. But, like, that's true. That seems true. But there's a, it's in very good company uh, among excellent movies that were snubbed. So I have a hard time thinking that that fundamentally matters, although I'm sympathetic to his sense of the achievement there, even though, as we discussed in the show, I didn't I didn't love that movie as much as some people did. Um, I mean, mostly I want people to win who are going to give good speeches. And the speeches were as a whole, the dynamic around the speeches was really interesting this year because the the patter was so flat and jokeless, like there were no good bits mm-hmm. or riffs. You know, maybe Anna Kendrick and Kevin Hart had like a... I mean, it was just by virtue of comparison to, like, complete voids uh, that they seemed at all animated. But um, there was extra weight on the speeches because the setups were so lame. I mean, I found myself TiVoing. I I started, like, 20 minutes late, and I wanted to kind of catch up so that I could be watching, you know, live along with my Slate colleagues and on the same I Am channels as them without uh, spoilers. And I found myself fast-forwarding through the host setups, which I usually love watching the stilted banter. It's, like, usually, like, funny enough, and then their ability to, like, stick or not stick the delivery of the half-funny thing plus the dresses amounts to something that's halfway entertaining to watch. But I just was, like, boop, boop, boop through the Mm -hmm. intros. So the speeches had this extra weight. And the speeches were really interesting. They were more political than usual. I mean, almost everybody wanted you to think about calling your mom or wage equality or ALS sufferers or, you know, immigration or or race in America. Like, there was a lot of very worthy causes shouted out almost so frequently and so often that um, usually there's, like, one person who does that and everyone's a little bit like, oh, Jared Leto, like, lay off with your poorly articulated politics, please. Like, just everyone felt... You know, it seemed like an urgent thing to relate. And then there was the funny dynamic with the, the unfamous people who kept getting played off. And then they would mention some life travesty and the playoff music would stop, which mm. if you're going to have the courage of your convictions to play off the less famous people, it, it made the whole thing seem like tentative and ill-conceived. Like they but I, I did love the moment when the when the Polish director, Paweł Palakowski, mm. faced down the uh, playoff music and won by mentioning, didn't he mention it, my late wife? He said my late wife. Then there was the other... Uh, 
director of the documentary Short who mentioned the suicide of her son. Oh, and that was a tragic NPH moment where he came back on stage and made some joke about her about dress. About her dress, which her dress was cool anyway, but it was like, she just, like, I know he probably cooked up that joke in the wings while, like, before she made mention of her son's suicide, but then, like, read the room and read mm-hmm. the moment, and she, you like, just, just read the next thing on the teleprompter, dude. I mean, maybe it was like literally an audio glitch where he didn't hear it, wasn't listening to the end of the speech or something, but it just, the whole thing felt so off. So you sort of had additional weight on the speeches. They were political in ways that were both interesting and not. And it, yeah, this question of what we expect from celebrities on this, you know, there was the kind of the shining bit with Common and, and John Legend where they were very prepared with what they were going to say and very incisive about it to the point that it almost was too well done. And there, you had this amazing awkward moment where John Legend was discussing the incarceration rates of black men in America and comparing it to the to the numbers of people under slavery and there were these awkward claps and woos that were the most embarrassing thing that happened the whole evening practically and then that was immediately followed which was kind of my favorite Oscar-y thing was immediately followed by the Lady Gaga Sound of Music tribute with like birch trees it's like the whitest thing anyone yes. could possibly think that, of. Well that's where we got into kind of old school like Debbie Allen territory yeah, yeah. like 45 minutes before the end of the show you're going to have a lengthy tribute to to the sound of music for no reason. <laughs> Although I loved that, I will say. She kind of, it was like unboring. It was weird and therefore unboring. And yeah. also Lady Gaga kind of nailed it. Like it's sort of hard to go out and sing those songs. And, the, and, and, and in a medley form. And the way that Julie Andrews sang them was so like bell clear and un- Vava vampy that I thought I would hate. Sort of like diva reinterprets sound of music and yet she just like belted him in this way that you could only admire. And, and then just th- a great moment of strangeness in the reinvention of Lady Gaga's show tunes kid in her attempt to recover. But at the same time still that that juxtaposition was so hard Turn a hard right turn into Austria from from where we had been with Glory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the moment between it was all, it was all capped off by the moment between Lady Gaga and Julie Andrews afterwards, where I loved how Lady Gaga called Julie Andrews incomparable, which was the perfect word, and suggested that there was a limit on the ambition of having done that. And then I loved hearing Julie Andrews call Lady Gaga, "Dear Lady Gaga," mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which was wonderful. great. All right, so I, I want to ask a large question, and if it sucks, we can but pass over it in silence. But it seems to me what the Oscars are is a huge public party that Hollywood throws to celebrate itself once a year, and it presumes that the you know some huge proportion of the planet is watching. So it's enormously important to the self image and self image of Hollywood. It was a particularly good year for movies and a particularly bad year for the ceremony. Is there any meaning in this in the following way? The kind of golden era of Hollywood presupposed a fairly unified community of movie of commercial movie producers on the West Coast who then could express itself in awarding certain films and certain people in that unified way. There was an actual volitional, decently unified thing called the American filmmaking, commercial filmmaking community that could make a profound statement to go along with the giant spectacle, annual spectacle of self-celebration. Has that community frayed apart enough that they're making more interesting, more diverse films, but don't know how to celebrate them in this traditional way? In other words, this to me seems to me one possibility for why the movies were quite good in 2014. And the ceremony sort of sucked. They don't know how to, there is no voice with which Hollywood, unified voice that Hollywood could even presume to speak with. 
It's also really interesting because the, the one thing that your question reminds me of is kind of the bifurcation of the opening number. So the opening number is like a super sincere soft shoe, literally called moving pictures with the refrain moving pictures where NPH is just like earnestly talking about like the glorious movies of yesteryear and how much he loves them with a with a like little sprinkle of cinnamon sugar from Anna Kendrick. And then they bring Jack Black up on stage to sing yeah. this kind of like rock guitar riff about like all of the sins of Hollywood but it was almost um, like lancing the boil. Like mm-hmm. they acknowledge it in the setup and then they just like put him over to the side. And you're right. There could have been an Oscars that kind of celebrated the like oddballs this year. Like the Inuritu film that won Birdman is like an un- super unusual film. Yeah, it's basically indie versus indie this year. Yeah, which is like kind of what all of us like cranky cultural critics have been begging yeah. for and, for and, years. And Birdman, sorry to interrupt, but Birdman is a movie that's basically to the extent it's any kind of a parable. It's about refusing your commercial self and then being haunted to death by it. Well, this was Andrew O'Hare, the critic for Salon's theory about why Birdman oh, won yeah. and why Argo won and why the artist won. And, that you know, we're on this this whole kick now of Hollywood mm-hmm. wanting to, to create um, essentially a myth of its own purification. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I, I watched the, high, the opener and highlights from the Independent Spirit Awards right after watching the Oscars just because I stumbled from one YouTube clip to another. And the thing that struck me, which I hadn't realized but may be the pattern recently, is that almost all the same movies were up for nomination. And it speaks to the sort of gray zone of what's an independent movie now. But it also seemed to speak to just that sense of fragmentation that Steve was speaking to and the celebration that they were having of films like Boyhood and Birdman in the Independent Spirit Awards seemed like such a more pure and simple, Mm -hmm. joyful celebration than what you were getting at the Oscars. All right. Great discussion. I think we're done almost, though, Julia Turner. I see that glint in your eye. You want to talk a little red carpet? I always am a deep advocate for discussing the red carpet, but like, whew, snoozeroo. I mean, the only thing I can say is that Kate Blanchett looked great, and that's like what you say every year with her. I loved the frayed hem on the sleeves of her black shift dress and her big ass turquoise Nick Cowell thing. I don't know. Dana, was there anything else? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit the reign of the stylists, right? There's no Bjorks and Swan dresses anymore, unless you count Lady Gaga maybe with the giant red dishwashing gloves. But there were not many outfits that were witty or loopy But in it's any like way. when the people who you expect to break the rules break the rules, that's like just even more boring. Everybody looked... Super dopey. I don't know, Carl. Where's what's your red carpet stance? Can you can you? I mean, it? I don't pay that much attention to it either. But um, Lupita but had a good pearl dress. Uh, that was what I was going to say. Is Lupita Nyong'o was the one where I was like, oh, okay, that's crazily stunning. That's amazing. And I then mean, you if, feel bad for Felicity Jones because <laughs> yeah. pale gray pearl dress, right? I mean, obviously she's not going to pull Can't it off wear it in the same way. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash/culturefest, and pour your outrage and scorn upon the show uh, or upon us, either way. But uh, I'm curious to hear Boyhood Partisans. We didn't really get into that. I was hoping it was going to win. It didn't. But uh, anyway, great discussion. Let's let's move on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Can we cue the music on this? I guess that sounded more like Game of Thrones. Anyway, we are sponsored this week by Netflix, which is presenting season three of its original series, House of Cards. All episodes of the new season are available on Friday, February 27th. Did you guys see the uh, amazing letter that someone wrote to the Boston Globe? The snowbound citizens of Boston have gone so stir-crazy that they just wrote publicly imploring Netflix to release House of Cards early (laughs) in the Bay Area. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like an open letter. It's like the 95 theses of Boston. Bring us Netflix. <laughs> anyway, I'm not, I do not believe that Netflix relented on that front, but... House of Cards Season 3 will be available to all of us this Friday, February 27th. It is, of course, the acclaimed political thriller from executive producer David Fincher, which stars Kevin Spacey with a wonderfully sinister drawl, and Robin Wright as his icy and ruthless wife. And now, without spoiling too much, they hold power and people will try to undermine the Underwoods. So our listeners can look forward to that. You can stream Seasons 1 and 2 of House of Cards right now, and then all episodes of Season 3 will be available on Friday, February 27th, only on Netflix. All right, Stephen, please continue wielding your ruthless power over this podcast. (laughs) Icy and ruthless Steve Metcalf. All right, well, moving on. Carl, it's awesome to have you here to talk about Bjork, which we've never done. Very curious to hear what your feelings about her as an artist are. Mine are so, they're as crepuscular and weird as I think she is or as I take her to be. So sort them out for me. What do you, what would you say about her career to this point and where this album fits into it? Well, I, I have to confess to being kind of on the, on the unadulterated fanboy side as far as Bjork goes. I mean, I think that I was seduced immediately by the sugar cubes when they appeared when I was a teenager and understood that there was this kind of Reykjavik underground scene that seemed fascinating and different than what we understand from North America or for even more familiar kind of European undergrounds. And so that, that's that been a hook in that, that has kept me following her work ever since. And So we should say quickly that the Sugar Cubes were her uh, initial uh, band. Yeah. I mean, she started as a 12-year-old making pop music in in Iceland and then joined a bunch of anarchist collectives and things like that as a teenager. And eventually out of those things came, she had a jazz group for a while. And finally, the Sugar Cubes were kind of her alt-rock breakthrough. And then once that had run its course, she became this kind of auteur of kind of experimental music. And she's collaborated with all kinds of artists and electronic artists and and visual artists over the years. And, And so watching her evolution... It's hard to say exactly where this album places her. It certainly has gotten maybe a little more mainstream attention than her past few releases. But the thing that's really striking about where we find her at this point in her career, you know, she's a middle-aged mother who's just gone through a separation and divorce. And we find her suddenly on this album, uh, Volnikura, in the thick of that personal crisis. And in some ways, fascinating as a counterbalance to the continuing kind of both sexist and exoticizing narrative that a lot of people have of her as this kind of, you know, manic pixie dream girl character. And and this is this very serious, very emotional, personal album that really requires you to, to grapple firsthand with with something much more serious and, and kind of devastating. And the title of the album is, it means both wound and healing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a neologism of her own. And so, yeah, it means both wound and healing. Yeah. What cut should we listen to first? Well, let's start with the opening track, which is really a scene setter in a lot of ways, both for the musical style and for the sort of personal diaristic tone of the album. And that's called Stone Milker. Find our mutual coordinate. Find our mutual coordinate. 
I love that line in the very first song, the very beginning of the first song of the album, Moments of Clarity Are So Rare, I Better Document This. Mm. And something yeah. that you say, Carl, in your, in your review of the album, which, by the way, is a virtuosic piece of criticism. I loved it. Agree. Is that it's a rare breakup album that's written kind of in real time, you know, so it's not someone looking back on their breakup, but you almost feel like you're watching her scribble the diary entries down as these things are happening. Yeah, that line, I better document this, proves to be really a sort of a writ for the whole album. because And, and the songs up through the first two thirds of the piece are actually appended with the time of their composition but not the date of their composition but their relative date to the to the breakup itself and so the first couple of songs are are like six months before three months before and then it's clear you're actually at the moment and then it starts to become three months after six months after and then there's sort of a coda period so you really are it's a, it really has this sort of cinema verite documentary sense that you're getting sort of journal entries that have been transformed into these compositions and her delivery is is very much that kind of wrenching each word out and trying to articulate what she's feeling about what's happening with some kind of precision, but also with exactly that sense you have in the kind of vertigo of a major breakup that, that words are almost impossible to find. And you, you hear both of those things happening at once, which is one of the things that I find really s- stunning and absorbing about listening to it. Right. I mean, on paper, as I'm looking at them right now in the digital booklet, some of the the words look sort of like New Age platitudes. But there's even a sort of a sense that that simplicity and that struggle for finding the right words is part of it. And she says in this very um, revealing Pitchfork interview about the, the album that the words are very simple and they're sort of teenage, you know, and I think that's that's a deliberate move on her part. So can I respond to that and offer some confessions of a lifelong Bjork Skeptic is too strong a word, but well, I'm not a Bjork file. (laughs) I'm just Mm. no, like you know, I guess I feel about it the way that I feel about (laughs) about the island of Iceland, which is it's like a distant, beautiful redoubt that is opaque to me. And reading your, I read your review before listening to the album and thought, oh hey, maybe this is the Bjork album I will finally like because I like lyrics first of all. I like lyrically driven music, and I like lyrics that present the world to me in unusual ways with like flashes of verbal ingenuity that like talk to the music they're part of in in surprising ways. And I listen to this album and I can hear the things you masterfully describe in it. And I, I'm just like, when would I listen to Bjork? That's the problem that I have trouble solving. It's like, I can hear it and sort of admire it and get a sense of why people like it and that she's an extraordinary musician and, but I'm just like, when would I play this? Like, when would this fit into my life? Well, chopping scallions. Is that when you listen to Bjork, Steve? No, but are, I, are you a Bjorkophile? I'm somewhere in between you and Carl, from what I pick up from the conversation. But I, this is a good, I think, entry point for listening to another cut, and then Dana will come out maybe after that for to you. But what's the most immediately accessible, to the extent there <laughs> might be one? Yeah, I mean, just to hear something different maybe let's play from towards the end of the album um, mouth mantra which has a very different sound you 
So, I mean, nothing on this album is super upbeat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's, you know, this really isn't sort of entry-level Bjork on that level. You know, I, if you go back to a lot of 90s Bjork where there's a lot of sort of joyful dance music stuff and even um, Vespertin in the early... 2000s. It kind of bookends this album because it was the beginning of her relationship, and that's kind of a like sex love album. This album is all of a piece in a way, but you can hear in Mouth Mantra some of the contributions of her co-producer Arca, who brings in some kind of contemporary dance music sounds in a contrast to this kind of chamber music thing that she's doing, and they 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 build in those kinds of textures along the way. So none of it is dance around the house music, you know. But this is really kind of a headphone album. But I think it it almost has, you know, you, how would you listen to this? You would listen to it kind of the way you listen to early Joni Mitchell or something like that. It's really... Like in the of, bathtub, yeah, smoking a joint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really like sit on your bedroom floor and weep out, you know? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really talk about my own history much with Bjork, but I feel like I also discovered her back in the Sugar Cubes days. And actually, one of my first loves, one of our songs, our song was, was the Sugar Cube song, Birthday, which years later I realized is about child molestation or something. <laughs> but I never understood the lyrics. It was just the joy and passion and ecstasy in her voice, and I've loved her ever since. All right, well, the new record is Volna Cura, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's from Bjork. Come to our Facebook page. Tell us what you think about Bjork. Very curious to hear what the Bjork kids in our audience have to say about it. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Uh, one thing we did not talk about in our discussion of the Oscars was the fact that one of the most entertaining things to watch during the Oscars was the ads for our next sponsor, American Crime which is a TV show that is premiering next week on ABC. This is a show that has an awesome pedigree. Felicity Huffman stars in it. I'd watch anything that Felicity Huffman is for the, is in for the rest of my life, along with Timothy Hutton. And it comes from the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave. That's John Ridley. This is about one offense that sends shockwaves through a community, shattering families and igniting a media frenzy. And it is powerful, thought-provoking and timely. So that's again American Crime premiering next Thursday, March 5th on ABC at 10, 9 Central. I've always wanted to talk about Central Time, Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Somehow we've never covered that as a topic on this show. Maybe, that... maybe our site plus segment should be time zones. All right. On to our next segment. Lovely. Will do. All right. Well, Julia, I'm going to have you take it away here um, after a brief introduction from me. But apparently there's been a wonderful dust up on Slate between Fred Kaplan, an audiophile of quite good standing, and Seth Stevenson, who is quite the skeptic about a new digital music player from Neil Young. And the two of them got into it. What happened? So Seth Stevenson writes about many things for Slate, but among other things, he's our gadget columnist. So he reviewed the Pono Player, which is Neil Young's new kickstarted widget, oddly Toblerone-shaped and (laughs) non-pocket-friendly, which allows you to play what audiophiles call high-definition audio. And I'm not going to get into all of the kilohertzes and megabits and decibels, and I'm already saying words that are incorrect, I know, which may tip my hand where I fall in this debate. But in any event, it allows you to play file format, which audiophiles believe to hold more information and produce a better listening experience. Seth tested it, could not hear any difference between it and the iPhone played it for a number of other Slatesters, all of whom were unable to distinguish its sound qualities, then started looking into the world of audiophilia and found a number of scientific studies suggesting that basically being an audiophile is akin to being like a vaccine denier or, you know, it's just sort of like there's if if you ever 
tested scientifically. Nobody can hear the difference. And so these people were paying tens of thousands of dollars for high-end systems or deluding themselves. Uh, One particular quote here, he sums up his research here. Basically, the whole split boils down to this. People who consider themselves empiricists and who believe in A-B testing and in the known science of the human ear are convinced that selling high-res music is a scam that separates fools from their money. One guy I talked to, an Ivy League physics professor who didn't want me to use his name because he was wary of wading into this fray, used the term snake oil. Mm. So that is pretty <laughs> pretty harsh words. He's definitely tossing audiophilia out the window. However, Fred Kaplan, also a sometime guest on this show and a, our venerated military correspondent primarily here at Slate, has a sideline as a major league audiophile and writer about all things audiophilic. He's a contributor to Stereophile. And so he wrote a rejoinder piece for Slate called I Audiophile, in which he proudly uh, tells the story of how he became an audiophile. And he has sort of a clever rhetorical gambit here, which is that he describes how, as a callow youth, he too thought audiophilia was bogus, and he was going to go report it out and blow the lid off the whole thing. So he went to an you know, audiophilia shop and had fell to his knees and had a conversion experience and realized that this was the true way and the true path. So he wanted to proudly claim his audiophilia, and he wrote... So Fred, in, in the start of his piece, notes that Seth, in his Pona review, quoted at one point, quote, a friend who fancies himself an audiophile. This friend was me. What's with this fancies himself, I asked myself. It suggests that the whole enterprise is vaguely fraudulent in the same sense that you might refer to someone who fancies himself a psychic. Let me be forthright about this. I am an audiophile and proud of it. And so I rise in defense of audiophilia, which might be defined as the love of listening to good music that sounds good, that sounds in some sense real. What could be wrong or silly about that? And then he goes on on this matter of empiricism and A-B testing to note that on several occasions he's passed A-B testing tests and offers an explanation. When I passed my A-B test at the audio show, the guy administering it dismissed my score as a, quote, statistical anomaly. An alternative explanation might have been that I was an experienced listener. There are bird watchers who can distinguish three kinds of sparrows from their tweets, though they all sound the same to me. It's not that the birder has golden ears. It's mainly a matter of training and exposure. If you or I wanted to master the bird songs in Central Park, we could. So... We have here a deep, fundamental, and passionately held split that I've never thought that much about. But we thought that since we have a musical guest, a musically inclined special guest today, it would be a good day to discuss it. So, Carl, where do you fall on the Fred to Seth spectrum of uh, audiophilia appreciation? I, I think that instinctively I fall on Seth's side of the scale just because I don't, by inclination, want to spend the time or money or and don't have the ability to spend the time and money to set up a lavish home theater and do all of my listening in a vacuum-sealed room. With so, your hair blowing back. My like hair blowing back, back. yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think that the truth has got to be somewhere in between. You know, we all know that not, you know, that if you listen to a crappy MP3 through broken headphones that it doesn't sound the same as listening to something on a nice stereo and and that scale must continue up to some degree and then there's also got to be a point of diminishing returns and i think the real debate is about where that line falls and then specific devices you know the possibly the neil young formula is simply an ill thought out thing and it doesn't deliver but there are lots of different experiences and the thing that gives me pause when i'm tempted to dismiss this and simply say, however you listen to music in whatever context works for you, if that's functional for you, then that's the maximum enjoyment of music. That's kind of what I want to say. But then I think specifically of um, going into an art gallery 
and seeing the Janet Cardiff or hearing the Janet Cardiff and George Burris Miller piece, 40-part Mozart, which took the voices of a 40-part Renaissance-era vocal piece by Thomas Tallis and put each of the voices in a separate speaker, which are then ringed around the room. And the way you experience the piece is kind of to lie down in the middle of the room. And these are really, really good speakers. And the voices are isolated very carefully. And what you actually feel like is that there's a live choir around you singing, and it's kind of the most transcendent oral experiences I've ever had. And that counts for something. <laughs> you know, there, there, is, there is something to what Fred talks about as that time travel or space travel effect of having real great audio fidelity that makes you feel like you're hearing this performed live in every detail around you. And, and that exists. Whether it needs to happen all the time or not is, I, th- is I think, a real question. And, and the answer is almost always no I, you could i'm just as happy to have sort of tinny music rattling around in my ears traveling on the subway but as a critic i often wonder whether i'm missing things listening through the sort of mid-end stuff that i do that might make me think twice about my judgments about music that i'm listening to and and so it, it's an interesting live category to me but any kind of extremism on, on any end of it seems a little odd it does remind me of wine. It makes me think of yeah, wine, the conversation around wine primarily. And, you know, I read Seth's piece and was like, wow, what a shim. And then I read Fred's piece and was like, hey, I bet Fred does know what he's talking about. You know, it's it's like I'm very, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm very persuadable, I think. But I do, you know, I think that Fred's point about experience holds a lot of weight with me. I mean, I think about two things. I think about wine, which I don't know that much about, but I enjoy and which my, you know, dad is serious about. And once you learn about it, you can tell things about it from drinking it. Like There are definitely people who can drink a glass of wine and be like, and name the vineyard and name, you know, a range of years that it might be. Also, there's people who can't tell red from white when blindfolded and um, and that test has been done. So I'm not sure that Fred's point that a, that a random A-B test may not be the only way to evaluate this is is sensible. Also, to your point about kind of the, the distinctions of production and how you can acquire an ear for them over time, and I recognize that production and playback are two different things, but for me as the ignoramus, I'll file them both under like finer points of hearing the thing that you're listening to. Even just over our you know, seven or eight years of doing this podcast, I've learned more about how to use a microphone and learned more about sound quality. And when I listen to other things, I can tell. There are podcasts that I like, but that I don't listen to because they are they don't have their shit together in terms of podcast production. And I wouldn't it wouldn't have bothered me five years ago until I learned how to hear it. And someone pointed out to me once that Tom Petty's albums are always really beautifully produced. And like, I love Tom Petty for many reasons. He's a great musician and he writes great rock songs. But there is something... Comparatively, when you hear his songs come on in like a shuffle mix with a bunch of other stuff, you feel like you can hear, I don't know, the space in the song I somehow. The space is the right word, yeah. Um, and so these brief brushes with the ineffable and unmeasurable convince me that there is a there there. Yeah. I, let me jump in if that's all right. Um, I think wine and music are alike in this way, which is that they're meant to be and have to be ultimately integrated into experience. And the more you fetishize them, actually, the more I beyond a certain point, certainly uh, fetishizing them, you start to distance yourself from them, right? The fussiness actually is putting a kind of experiential scrim between you and it. And so if you have to put on a hazmat suit and walk into a clean room in order to listen to music, somehow you've killed 
You fucked it up. You <laughs> fucked it up, the essence of it. And similarly, like, if you go out with someone who has a shitload of coin and wants to drop it on some, you know, serious wine, it's true you can have an amazing experience in a transcendent bottle, but I've been at tastings where I'm having wine that is unbelievable, serially, bottle after bottle. You know, it's amazing, but it's become too much the centerpiece of what's happening at the table and it's not integrated into the meal, the conversation or the experience. And all of a sudden it's, it's, and I love wine. It suddenly becomes mildly repulsive. And similarly, like there are just, there have been nights where a $40, you know, Sardinian red that the owner says, Oh, I've had this in my basement for three years. I'm so glad someone finally ordered it. How do you know Sardinian wines? And he corks it and it's just the most, you know, sensuous and beautiful experience. And you remember it for years. Right. And it's like, so there, you know, and the other thing I would say, is that knowing a lot liberates you from having to spend a shitload of unnecessary money. Like, knowledge actually is a way to arrive at your own desire without being snake-oiled or snookered or having to overpay. So I hate that other argument, which is, like, experts blindfolded don't even know the difference between red and white, which is horseshit, right? Like, someone who really knows and loves wine is pretty good at identifying what they're drinking and why they like it, right? That's the important thing. It's a way of accessing your own love for something, not kind of throttling it with um, persnicketiness. Dana, where do you come down? I'm curious both in terms of your listening and then also, of course, for film, we've got the whole attendant set of questions. I had a landmark moment last night where for the first time in the history of Julia Turner, I, w- I was watching a television show with my husband and was like, I think that the TiVo didn't record the HD channel. And I literally had never noticed the difference between oh HD or not before, but I did. So there's there's also kind of the fine point production coming to your world as well. But I'm curious first about the musica. Yeah. I mean, this, this Fred and Seth debate, in addition to being extremely funny, I actually encourage people to read it even if you care nothing about audiophilia because just Fred's sort of unsolicited, you know, standing up for audiophilia was just fantastic. And I happen to know from experience that every time I see Fred, he's asking me, are the blacks in your TV balanced? Can I come over and balance <laughs> the blacks in your TV? <laughs> because he lives not far from me and he's always promising to balance my black. So come do it, Fred. <laughs> so this stuff is, is really personal to him and I, I love that he, he stood up for it. I mean, one thing that I will say for his argument. And I'm thinking about this stuff a lot right now because um, one of the things I'm doing during my leave is trying to outfit my office so that it's a place that I actually work because, like Steve, I'm a person with an office who wanders the house all day looking for somewhere to write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and I want to get good music down there. Right now, the only way I have to play music in my office is on a laptop, on a, through a tinny little speaker. And I do agree with Fred's basic thrust of his argument, just in the sense that the onset of the digital era of music, which has brought us so much more music and so much more access to different kinds of music, has also made people really happy with some pretty pathetic music playing setups, right? Like you're at somebody's house and they want you to hear a great new song and you all like gather around the laptop to listen to it. That's pretty sad. You know, so I'm trying to look into something. Obviously, I'm not going like Kaplan level high end, but yeah, I might get some speakers, outfit my office in some way that it can sound resonant. Have you told Fred about this project? (laughs) (laughs) If I get Fred over, forget it. I'm going to have to tithe my salary to him for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah, I do think that the digital, I mean, one other thing that I found in my own music listening, and it comes back to the the Bjork point of when would I listen to this and um, no offense to podcasting obviously I'm team podcasts all the way but there's less room for audio in my life now because I spend so much time listening to people talk like there's the kind of walking there's the strutting which as we all know I love and there's dance music and there's like cooking music kind of like you want to have a conversation but a lot of the times when I would have listened to music during my 20s I now listen to people talk and that works for me. Like I've always, you know, music among the arts that I love and appreciate has always been further down the list for me. And so 
you can all take my thoughts on music with the attendant skepticism that it that it uh, deserves. But there is a loss there, and part of it is, and and the technology for me has followed that. It's like perfectly fine to just like you know stick my iPhone in my apron pocket and have it follow the house around with me either through a earbud or out loud if I'm home alone just like chatty company and for all that I'm complaining about the difference in podcast production basically you can hear what people are saying for the most part um, although I won't take the step of speeding it up to 1.5x the way some mm. people do which to me just seems like demented I don't need to hear the conversation that badly yeah kind of Alvin and the chipmunk you know, version it's hard of. to take those people seriously. But, um, I mean, the speakers when they're sped up, not the people who listen to sped up speakers. I'm sure some of you are listening to me like this. And now it's only <laughs> yeah. so, anyway, love to you all. However, but I feel like it's hard to invest in a really sick audio setup now that most of my audio is like people talking. And maybe that's a very particular complaint. I don't know if you guys share this, but I don't like listening to music on headphones. I find it very claustrophobic, and I always have people talking great on a, on a podcast or whatever in my earphones. But I feel like when I hear music, I want it to move through the air, create sound waves, and move into my ears. Otherwise, I don't know. There's something strangely just claustrophobic and kind of solipsistic about having music just in your head. I love that little world. It's like, it feels like when you're underwater, kind of, and like mm. the... You're having your own little private experience, and you can see the world above you glimmering on the surface. Like I, I like the little private audio bubble. I feel like there are so many interesting chronological and generational markers in all of these things too. Like I think that you know nobody under thirty would ever say what Dana just said because people just grew up so much with headphones on, and that became such the dominant way of listening to music. And similarly, you know, when I think about this audiophile question, I think of my dad's generation, you know, and I think my dad was kind of a space-age bachelor pad kind of guy for a brief flash in his life, and kind of always was nostalgic to recapture that. And I remember him, like, coming home from the stereo shop with more components for his home hi-fi system, and my mom kind of looking despairingly at the credit card statements, and, you know, before they could really afford those things, he was still drawn to those gadgets. And I think that I kind of had a reverse effect generationally thinking like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a old style, like stuffy man thing to do to worry about your hi-fi components. And then, you know, the way that those flip around, it becomes kind of a punk rock thing. And you're like, let's play it on the crappiest thing. And then it becomes like a digital generation thing where it's the most portability on the smallest device. And all of these kinds of values seem like they shift around all the time according to what's available and what the, the greatest novelty factor is. Okay. All right. Well, the um, original piece was from Seth Stevenson. It's called Out of the Blue and Into the Whack, a great headline. It's on um, Slate, as is uh, Fred Kaplan's response. I am an audiophile and I won't apologize for it. Check them out. All right. Now is when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Well, since we talked about Bjork with Carl, I wanted to uh, to endorse a couple of older Bjork songs that are in a different mode. If you if you like a pop singing Bjork, just sort of delivering a, a good show tune, and if you like a beautifully directed music video, then I'm endorsing um, two Spike Jones videos starring Bjork, um, which are people probably know if you're a Bjork fan because they're they're two beloved ones. One is her song Triumph of a Heart, which in some sort of comic way enacts sort of the Matthew Barney breakup. The video tells the story of Bjork, um, you know, spending a night away from her man and uh, and living it up in Reykjavik. It's, it's a great little mini story in the video. And the other Spike Jones bjork video collaboration I wanted to endorse is It's Oh So Quiet, which is maybe her most show tune of show tunes and has a really, really wonderful infectious video of her wearing a yellow dress and dancing through the streets of, I imagine, Thank you, Vic. Mm. Excellent. We'll go out on one of those, I'm sure. Um, Julia, what do you have? 
Did you guys read the very funny piece that went around the internet this week by, uh, it was an email dialogue between Virginia Heffernan and Paul Ford, two writers I oh my revere. God, yes. Yeah. So these terrific writers posted on Medium an exchange they had where they basically got into like a prank contest to send each other the most dread-inducing emails and email subject lines that you could imagine. And it's just super comical. It has echoes of um, The Underminer, which is Virginia Heffernan's old project with Mike Albo, where uh, they developed this character, The Underminer minor who would send just like similarly gut punching but happy sounding sentences but I'll just I'll just read a few examples here and then direct our listeners to go find the rest so that so the whole thing begins from Virginia to Paul subject can you give me a quick call by EOD question mark the subject is haha just kidding that's my private horror anxiety message that I need a bot for then call in codes for recurring conference call then Aetna enrollment period ended noon today. (laughs) (laughs) Then sign-up sheet for 2015 office massage circle. (laughs) And then subject, huge favor, storm messed up our clothes, so can you get it in by Friday morning? Anyway, I'm just like now reading them aloud, but it's very funny. We'll post a link to it on the show page. I love the idea of just your friendship one-upmanship becoming a a, a published series of jokes. It's great. (laughs) That's awesome. Carl, what do you got? Um, Well, I'm going to indulge myself a little bit um, and make my endorsement something related to the thing that brings me to New York, which is that I've been doing this show at the kitchen called All Our Happy Days Are Stupid with a bunch of comrades from Toronto. And I can't endorse the show partly because I'm in it and partly because it's sold out, so it wouldn't be of any use to anyone. But what you can do is do the home game version um, (laughs) because uh, McSweeney's has just brought out the plays by Sheila Hetty from Toronto, and and they've just brought out the script as a a little chapbook, and it's a sort of exquisitely made little chapbook. And so if if you get that and you also stream the Destroyer album, Your Blues, which includes most of the songs that Dan Behar wrote for the play, you can kind of... Like reverse engineer the play. Reverse engineer the play in your own home. And and the play is is a real sort of shaggy dog, absurdist kind of Ionesco in suburban Toronto and Paris thing that that no theater company would produce for a dozen years until this young kind of genius 26-year-old director just decided to take a flight on it. And those who've read Sheila's novel, How Should a Person Be, will know that that's the play that she's constantly trying to work on through the course of the narrative. And so there's kind of a metafictional aspect to it. But but my secret agenda in, in this is that we're hoping that people will get the play and then have their teenage children read it and it'll turn into the new Our Town. And <laughs> high schools all over the place will be doing this slightly obscene uh, play about bad parenting and then we'll fly to wherever it is and see the first independent production. All right. It's the ra- the race is on for the high school production of what's it called? All Our Happy, all Days, our happy are Days Are Stupid. That's a great yeah. title. And um, yeah, in full disclosure, Sheila is my ex-wife as well, which is part of how I got Who's Gowd into all of this. Sounds mm. incredible. Amazing. All right. Well, very quickly. So I went to go see Fifty Shades of Grey, not having read the book, not having experienced anything, but the kind of, you know, ambient public scorn for it. And the idea of it kind of found the movie somewhat intriguing and then began knocking around in my own head and a little bit on the show, the relationship between that material, its source material, and the first novel by many people's tellings, the first novel ever written, which is Richardson's Pamela, the first real novel. And, uh, I decided to go and reread parts of Pamela, which I, I had been assigned every time you took a survey course about the history of the novel, one was assigned to Pamela and one did not read it. And um, <laughs> it's on Project Gutenberg. It's totally free on the Internet. I printed out like 100 pages of it. It's fantastic because 
sort of everything is happening at once, right? The middle class doesn't really exist. It's trying to figure out as it comes into existence what it is, you know, how fixed are people's social roles? What are they going to be relative to one another? Uh, what kind of liberty does being a wage earner buy you? And what kind of bondage does it buy you? The person that she, Pamela works for, she's a servant girl who's being uh, repeatedly sexually, in a sense, sexually assaulted by her quote-unquote master. She calls him her master. Everyone has one foot in the, medie- in, in the medieval world. He's a, a licentious aristocrat, and she's a, a servant girl who feels as though possibly she should give in, but she also thinks of herself as part of a Puritan allegory, even though Richardson is a genius and knows that they're both part of this new thing called the middle class, even though they don't know it, and they're going to learn it in the course of the narrative. And the contract that they make with one another turns them, which eventually becomes a companionate uh, and civilly recognized marriage, turns them into modern human beings. And furthermore, it's epistolary. So you're getting it all through the kind of keyhole of Pamela, whose consciousness is quite in some ways small, but you're seeing through that tiny little keyhole this whole social landscape. So Richardson sort of sprung from nowhere a fully developed Nabokovian genius. It turns out it's fantastic. I think its its downfall is that it's unbelievably long. He discovered it was popular. He was writing it serially. He kept it going forever. Probably no one should be obliged to read the whole thing, but everyone should probably read the first hundred pages and then pick and choose through it. It's, I, I was shocked to discover it's kind of wonderful. And the other thing, very quickly, I want to endorse is tennis. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't played since 1996. Someone, to today's word, apparently is dragooned. Someone dragooned me into playing so against my will, I'm here to tell you that tennis rackets are so modern. You can literally throw your racket out into the middle of the court, sit down, crack a beer, and sit there and watch it. <laughs> hit balls back and forth for a half an hour like fucking Rafael Nadal. It is so easy to hit a tennis ball now compared to when I was 12 years old. It's just an amazing. I had so much fucking fun. It was awesome. I'm wow. Like, I'm just I, picturing Steve on a chaise lounge in tennis whites and little shorts reading Pamela. And then he tosses the book aside and just like runs in for a quick set. <laughs> a <few> overhead slam. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was a gas. I can't wait to do it again. It's going to be my old man sport. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, a total pleasure as always. Delightful. Boss to lady. Here, sir. Uh, Carl Wilson, uh, why can't you be on our show every week? Because I say eventually. That to myself all the time. Eventually, they would clamor for you to replace me. That's why. <sighs> never. Thank never, you so never. much for coming in. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Try